Hi, everybody. This is Jennifer Matarese. And before I start the podcast, I just wanted to take care of a couple of things. The first thing I wanted to do is say a huge thank you to those of you who've been able to toss a few bucks my way, whether it's through PayPal, Patreon, or GoFundMe, to kind of help out during my current financial situation. I have started a new job, and I'm trying to work to catch up on my bills, but I really do appreciate those of you who've been able to help me keep afloat during this difficult time. Uh, Dawn, thank you so much. Uh, the rest of you, I can't really remember names right now, but I really do appreciate um, all the help that you've been able to give me. And if you still want to help out, I, I, I would really appreciate that as well. Uh, I am still behind, like I said. Um, hopefully, I will be able to catch up eventually and be able to replace my computer, which has been my goal all year long. Uh, but right now I'm just happy to be able to have a roof over my head and food in my kitchen. Um, <laughs> the uh, second thing that I wanted to take care of is uh, I wanted to say thank you to those of you who've been suggesting new disasters on the, the post that I added on Facebook. Um, it's a pinned post, so I think you should be able to still, at least I think it's pinned. So I think you should be able to find it at the top of the page if you haven't checked already and you have any new disasters that you might want to post there. Um, I apologize if I don't respond immediately or at all, unfortunately. Um, I'm really bad about responding to comments and emails and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's my kind of fatal flaw right there. So, um, if, uh, you do suggest a disaster anywhere, whether it be on, uh, the WordPress blog, on Facebook, on Twitter, anywhere, if I don't respond, trust me, I still got it. I'm just really, really bad about responding. Um, but I've been adding a lot of new disasters to the list. I can't really guarantee when exactly I'm going to do them. Um, things being what they are in terms of having a full-time job and currently doing National Novel Writing Month in my spare time. Um, I can't r really um, do the amount of research that I want to do for a podcast in less than like two weeks. So with that in mind, it's, it's a little bit difficult to assure you that I will do your disaster next or in six months or whenever. Um, hopefully one of these days I'll be able to afford to uh, kind of uh, take a break and speed up a little more uh, in terms of uh, getting uh, episodes out. But for right now, I am adding a ton of disasters to the uh, list of disasters that I already have. Some of them I've forgotten. Some of them I didn't even know that they existed. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, and, and just keep in mind, too, um, if you do suggest a disaster that happened uh, within the past year or two, uh, there's a lot of uh, investigation in some of those that really isn't done yet, uh, reports, that sort of thing. So those sorts of disasters, I really really try to hold off on until there's more information. But with that in mind, it's really nice to have a nice full list of disasters to work from. And I do tend to uh, kind of pick and choose, you know, whichever one is sort of um, calling out to me from the list. So uh, I, like I said, I really can't guarantee when they're coming, but it's nice to know they're there. Um, the uh, third thing that I wanted to do is say that we have a new Instagram. Uh, when I uh, first started doing the Facebook page, uh, some of you who may have been around for a while may have seen where I tried in vain to do sort of a daily on this day in history, this disaster happened sort of thing. It really didn't work out, partly because I'm not really a big fan of Facebook, but uh, I am a big fan of uh, Instagram. It goes on my phone and I can do it whenever I want. So I, it, my phone is my toy. I love it. Um, 
But I have been doing sort of a on this day in history sort of thing and trying to uh, repost it to Facebook and uh, Twitter as well. But if you'd like to follow the Instagram, it is at Disaster Area Pod, which is normally what the social media uh, accounts are named for this particular podcast. Uh, there is also one more thing I wanted to do, which is sort of do my usual preemptive mispronunciation apology for languages which aren't English. Uh, Welsh is, Welsh is, is sort of a tricky language. Um, you think you're saying something correctly and you're really not. Uh, I did kind of look up a lot of words in regards to this particular, uh, disaster to just kind of make sure I was saying things correctly, but I may have missed one or two. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, I once described Welsh to somebody as the linguistic equivalent of a sneeze. So, uh, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. It's more of a visual look of a sneeze. It's a lot of F's and Y's and <laughs> that sort of thing. But um, it, I, and I also did want to preemptively apologize if I ever say British in regards to uh, this particular disaster. Um, that would be wrong. And I am wrong. Um, I know uh, just from a lot of my experience with um, uh the UK and, and uh, the different things, uh, you know, the different communities and that sort of thing. Um, I, I watch a lot of uh, UK TV. And so I understand Wales and Britain are two entirely different places. So if I say British, I understand I'm making a mistake and I apologize preemptively beforehand. Um, but with that in mind, um, thank you very much for listening and welcome to Disaster Area. <laughs> Episode 19, The Abervan Disaster, October 21st, 1966, 144 deceased, dozens injured. I want it recorded, buried alive by the National Coal Board. That's what I want on the record. That is the feeling of those present. Those are the words we want to go on the certificate. A father who lost a child at Abervan, shouting at the inquest in response to the declaration his child's cause of death was suffocation and crushing injuries. Abervan in Wales reminds me of my hometown. I grew up and I currently live in a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania that is on a hillside. And the thing about northeastern Pennsylvania is that it's a mining area. So the site of slag piles or tips or however you might want to refer to them, it's not unusual. I can remember playing on those sorts of places as a kid. You're trying to climb the side of it. You're heels are digging in, your sneakers are digging in, and these little pieces of rocks are falling down behind you. It's really hard to get your grip. And so seeing the pictures of what happened to Avervan, you get a little afraid that that could have happened in your hometown too. Avervan in Wales is a quaint little town. If you look at pictures of Avervan, it is the typical sort of village that you picture when you picture just kind of small town UK. It's you know, these little row houses and brick and stone uh, it's set into the side of a hill. It is in the county of Glamorgan in South Wales. Uh, if you know nothing about the UK, picture the main island. 
it, Wales is basically down into the left. Um, that's kind of the best way to describe where it is. It, um, it is sort of, you know, that long piece that sticks out. Wales is right above that. Uh, Abervan itself, I mean, it's a very quaint little town. Uh, it's right above the River Taff, which flows through the valley. There is, nowadays, there is something called the Taff Trail, which was lost in, launched in 1988. It's a 55-mile-long it's walking and cycling path which follows the river throughout Wales. Uh, this is something that also reminds me of the area that I am currently living in and that I grew up in, uh, in that uh, we used to have a lot of, or a lot more, I should probably say, a lot more uh, railroad uh, railroad ties and railroad tracks around here. But now that there aren't so many, there's something called Rails to Trails, which turns them into hiking paths. And you can actually follow these hiking paths and these cycling paths for miles. And it's the same thing in Abervan now. Uh, at the time, of course, they didn't have that, but this is the sort of area that you're talking about. It's a very rural area, uh, but it's a nice little small town, the kind of place that you would love to raise kids in. Now, like I said, it's a mining area. And the thing about the UK is that the mining industry in the UK has a really solid history in the area, and especially in Wales. Coal mining in the UK goes all the way back to Roman times. There's evidence of miners going back and uh, finding coal exposed on the surface, and then what they would do is sort of follow the seams underground to get more coal. There are records of digging for coal in different places around the UK, including South Wales, in the 13th century. It's something that it has kind of uh, placed its sort of mark all over these historical documents. Coal mining increased dramatically during the Industrial Revolution, hence all the smog and dirt and grit all over the place, uh, the because the fuel was necessary for steam engines. They really didn't need that coal so they could run the steam engines so they could uh, have uh, things like steam locomotives. And so, of course, with the steam locomotives, you are having more coal and more coal. And then, of course, coal was cheap and easy to find, so it became a very popular fuel in the homes throughout the UK. Um, I know that I've read in other stories of people who would, um, of kids who were for fun or, you know, just because they were playing by the tracks, they would follow trains and just kind of pick up the, the coal that had fallen out of the train and then take it home and that's how you'd heat your home. So these are the sort of things, um, I'm not exactly sure if that was an American thing or a British thing, but it seems to be something that kids would do. Uh, in 1913, when coal was at its, its height, over a quarter of a million people were toiling in the coal mines of Wales. But by the 1960s, by the time of the story, the coal industry was fading in the, uh, with the growing popularity of oil and nuclear power as resources. These were two things, I mean, especially with cars, you have to think about, you know, you're throwing just oil in there and, and, and um, you know, uh, gas and all those kind of things. So coal is really not the powerhouse that it used to be. And the coal industry is is falling apart a little bit because of that. The majority of the coal in the UK at the time came from over 1,300 deep mines throughout the country, as opposed to surface mines, where there were only a couple hundred. In charge of mining 
in the UK was the National Coal Board, which was led at the time by the chairman, Alfred Lord Robins. Robins was appointed chairman by uh, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan in 1960, and he quickly realized that the National Coal Board's finances were so awful that closings would be inevitable. And you kind of feel a little sorry for him. I mean, you can imagine taking a job like that, how tough it's got to be when you walk in the door knowing full well that as soon as you walk in and look at those paperwork, you know you're going to have to fire people. And especially considering that, you know, that's the, in terms of, you know, the media optics, that sort of thing, you really don't want to be seen as the person who's firing a whole bunch of people. If you think about movies that are set in Britain in the 80s, uh, think of movies like Billy Elliot and Pride, where you have uh, movies whose plots hinge on the minor strikes in Britain in the 80s. It's part of Margaret Thatcher's legacy that, and when I say legacy, I should add terrible legacy. There's a reason a lot of people don't like her and there is a very long list, but that's on that list of, of um, sort of the uh, treatment of the minors and all those sorts of things. So um, in the 50s and 60s where the story takes place, mines were closing throughout the UK due to lower production. Things were just kind of... Um, uh, winding down in terms of, of the coal mining industry. The issue with closing mines, though, was the National Union of Mine Workers. They were fighting relentlessly for mine workers and, of course, fighting against the closings of the mines. So one of the first things that Lord Robins does is he develops a close relationship with Will Painter, who was recently elected the union's leader. The two of them are working together and they agree that they have to think long term. It's not a matter of keeping the miners employed that they have right at the moment and keeping the mines open that they have right in the moment. They need to focus more on saving the industry itself. So what they start doing is they need to drastically reduce the number of mines, but they can't close them all in one fell swoop for the very obvious reason that if you close them all in one fell swoop, the entire country is going to be angry. This isn't something that you just do blatantly. We're closing everything. We're closing, you know, so many things. If you've ever been a part of a really big layoff, like I have, it's something that people notice. It's something that's on the news. And sometimes if you're really unlucky, like I was when I was laid off, you find out from the news that you're getting laid off. So, um, you know, it's not something that you really want to find out. It's not something that really looks very well. And even if it's something that you have to do, people get angry. Now, how they planned to do it was to close the mines individually rather in one sweeping motion. Uh, this is kind of to avoid controversy, and it's kind of sort of the opposite of the way that the Margaret Thatcher and the mines were working out. It was kind of this, you know, at that particular time, you have all these these uh, cameras who are who are uh, seeing this, and and in this particular instance, you know, they're being more subtle about it. When Robins takes office in 1960, there's 698 uh, pits or mines sort of slang in, in Britain to say the pit. So, uh, you know, if somebody in Britain says, you know, my dad works down the pits, that's what they mean. Uh, but at the time, there were 698 pits and 583,000 miners. Ten years later, in 1970, when Robins leaves office, there's 292 pits and 283,000 miners. What he would do is he would visit each of these pits. He would visit a pit on average about every 10 days. But at the same time, he's closing a pit every nine days. 
so you know it's it's kind of something you 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 know it looks good but in the end it's it's you know there's things going on behind the scenes that you're really not seeing uh, it it worked uh productivity started to raise it actually raised by 70 percent which allowed them to stop subsidizing the pits and you know just sort of let them run the only problem is everyone else is in the dark really it's it's not a big thing in in britain it's not all over the pages they're not you know complete you know it's not a big like oh my gosh they laid everybody off sort of a thing uh so not the average person doesn't know about this but the miners the miners know they are in a constant state of fear that their mine is going to be closed next and this is how they're making their decisions they're thinking you know if i do this is my mine going to close there are um, certain things that I should probably um, share as well in terms of, of um, slang or, you know, sort of um, uh, words that are important to know. Um, first of all, there's a colliery. A colliery in UK includes the coal mine and its structures. Uh, it's, it's sort of used a little differently. Um, we used to use it in the US a lot more, but it's more of like a historical word. It's something, you know, we use um, you know, decades ago, if not a hundred years ago, as opposed to now. And in the, uh, in Australia, it's sort of an underground coal mine. That's all it is. It, it really depends on where it is. In the UK, it's the coal mine and the structures involved in it. Uh, and like I said, a pit is slang for a mine in the UK. Um, what we need to focus on though, is a tip. A tip is a large pile of waste rock left over from mining. Like I said, you may have heard it referred to as a slag pile, even though it's, it's kind of composed uh, usually of shale, sandstone, and other things which come out of the mine, but aren't what the mine produces. So um, like I said at the beginning of the episode, it's one of these things that you see in places like Northeastern Pennsylvania, where I live. Um, I know there's a particular pace, place that I drive past when I'm going to work that drives directly past big piles of, of uh, these, you know, these big tips. And the thing about these tips is that, you know, basically they look like big piles of black rock. Uh, if you know if you have them in the area, you may have seen people driving four-wheelers across them, which is something that I see all the time. And of course, people put up signs and say, don't drive your four-wheelers on these tips for the obvious reason is that these are unstable ground. Driving up on, on uh, you know, these things is unsafe. It's not steady. Uh, you know, if I was walking up it as a kid, the rocks were going out from under your feet and you're trying to grab for a hold, you're trying to stay upright. It's really difficult to go up when you're just a person. Going up on a four-wheeler, it's a little unsafe. Um, you can kind of make it a little more stable by landscaping it. You know, you're putting up trees, you're, um, you know, getting some roots down and holding that together. But at the same time, it's really still kind of unstable anyway. Uh, what would happen is the buckets would, in this case especially, uh, these buckets would carry the waste rock from the mine up to the top of the tip to be dumped onto it. So you have sort of a situation where, um, like a ski lift, uh, this uh, bucket of waste rock is brought up the mountain on a lift and dumped on top of the hill, uh, uh, top of this tip. 
The tips in question were located on Minneth Murther, which is a ridge overlooking Abervan. So instead of being, you know, in the valley where it might be a little less obtrusive, they were up on top of the hill. And of course, you have these big unsteady piles on top of a hill overlooking a town. The tips over Abervan had accumulated over 50 years from the waste rock that came up from the mine, and they were composed of debris from the Murther Vale Colliery. The colliery had been run since 1947 by the National Coal Board. It had seven tips around Abervan, six of which were unused. They'd stopped using them, but one of which, number seven, was still tipping. Uh, four of those tips, including number seven, were up on that particular hillside. If you see pictures from before uh, this happened, there are th three or four piles that you can, you can very easily identify up on top of this mountain overlooking this very quaint little town. These particular tips were being compiled on top of a layer of porous sandstone underneath which were several underground springs. In the early 60s, concerns were being raised about the stability of the tips atop the mountain overlooking Abervan and the Pantglas School. In 1963, Merthyr Tidfil Council approached the National Coal Board with complaints about the fact that the mines began to add tailings to the tips in February of the previous year. Tailings are these really f very fine materials from colliery washeries. It's basically, it's a little more thinner. And if you know anything about, um, uh, you know, when you have sort of bigger rocks and you pour in littler, littler, smaller rocks, excuse me, if you pour in smaller rocks, they go through the little holes. So if you're pouring, you know, you pour in the little holes and then you pour in dust and of course that dust fills in the area between that. What would happen with these tailings is that you'd pour this through here and they would set hard when they got wet. And of course you have these underground springs underneath these tips and it would just, all combined, it would just make these flooding issues associated with the tips worse. In 1963, there was a tip slide involving the number four tip, uh, but it was just kind of regarded as just a slurry run or a tailings flow uh, by the National Coal Board. So nothing really serious. It didn't it destroy anything. It was just a little bit of, of kind of sludge coming down the mountain, but nothing that harmed anyone or harmed any um, sort of uh, buildings or anything like that. In July of 1963, the Merthyr Tidfil borough engineer wrote to his supervisor that the tip may move due to the tailings because in the winter and heavy rains, it, it couldn't possibly stay where it was. A uh, letter circulated from the engineer entitled, Danger from Coal Slurry Being Tipped at the Rear of Pantglass School. The supervisor and the colliery officials tried to come up with a solution, but the tailings were still being added to the tips at the time as they're trying to do this. So, you know, they're having this issue and they're, they're not stopping so they can figure out what to do. They're just, they're just continuing to do it. In March of 1964, the National Coal Board's mechanical engineer stated that the tailings should not be added to the tips after the next six to eight weeks. So they were kind of winding it down. By May of 1965, the tailings had stopped being dumped into the tip, according to the National Coal Board. In 1964, a local councillor named Gwyneth Williams warned that the tip may collapse and strike the school. In 1965, some mothers of Pantclass school students composed a petition to remove the tip and delivered it to the Merthyr County Borough Council. Uh, the, the petition was actually delivered by Ann Jennings, who is the headmistress of Pantclass Junior School. 
Pancles Junior School uh, is located, or it was located, unfortunately, I should say, uh, on Moy Road. Moy Road is when you look at a picture of of Abervan, and it's on this hillside. Moy Road is, I want to say, at the top of the town, but it really, the town really doesn't extend that far up the hill. So it's kind of the highest road on the town. Uh, what you have is this Pantglass Junior School, it's basically the elementary school, and the rear classrooms in this school have a clear view of the tips on the hill above. And you can see it in pictures from before this happened. Uh, there's uh, pictures of the school, and then this hillside, and then up on the hillside you see these little black points. Between the school and the tips is this slope, on which a canal and a disused railway line. Uh, the still used Merthyr to Cardiff water main was also there as well. On October 21st, 1966, uh, you have uh, Pankloss Junior School uh, going to class, classes, excuse me, starting at 9 a.m. Uh, Pankloss Senior School, which was to the right of uh, the Pankloss Junior School, if you look at it from overhead with the tips on the top. Uh, Pankloss Senior School started half an hour after the junior school did. Now on Moy Road, you have the, the, uh, you have the junior school. You have a, kind of a row of houses, these, these kind of houses that are, that are right next to one another, one after another. Then there's the corner of Moy Road, and the road kind of uh, tilts a little bit downward uh, at an angle. And then there's the senior school right next to that. So it's one right after another. There you go. Um, this particular day on October 21st, it was their last day before the half-term holidays started. And it's kind of a drizzly day. It's, it's really been raining heavily in Abervan for days now. Uh, this particular morning, the mountain, the mountain above was sunny, but in the valley where the village was, there was this layer of thick fog that made visibility difficult. You almost couldn't see your hand in front of your face. The uh, particular morning that in question, there were 240 children in the Pankglass Junior School. When you read accounts of that particular morning, you're going to see reference to an assembly that they had that morning. And it, it's in a couple of documentaries where they, they reference that. And they actually say, you know, uh, these children were um, in the assembly room and they sang all things bright and beautiful. However, uh, when survivor Gaynor Magwick, who actually went on to write a book about Abervan and how the town dealt with it, it's really Good book. It's one of the better sources that I had for this particular podcast. Um, she asked one of the teachers, Howell Williams, in later years, if they had actually had that assembly, because she was really questioning that memory. And he told her there was no assembly, and that if there had been an assembly that morning, the children wouldn't have even been in their classrooms when the disaster occurred. As he told it, he needed to send two children to the secondary school with the dinner money, which would have normally been taken during the morning assembly. And uh, teacher Hetty Williams also said in Surviving Abervan, which is another documentary that actually came out about a month ago in uh, memorial of the uh, 50th anniversary, that they were supposed to have the assembly that afternoon rather than in the morning, sort of as a, you know, kind of a going way. We'll have this assembly, you know, we'll say goodbye and then we'll leave school. The kids are all in their classrooms, and at 9.15 a.m. 
is when the collapse occurs. It's tip number seven uh, gives way and over 1.4 million cubic feet of slurry, which is uh, sort of when the components of this particular tip uh, mix with water and become mud, essentially, uh, it flows down the hill like water and it starts to swallow everything in its path. The tip slide began when the upper flanks subsided about 10 to 20 feet. Uh, if you ever have seen pictures of Mount St. Helens when it uh, blew, there is a series of shots that were taken by a photographer, uh, you know, one right after the other of the collapse of the side of Mount St. Helens. It, if, you, if you know anything about, if you don't know anything about um, how Mount St. Helens blew, it, I'm, I'm sure it will be a future episode, but when Mount St. Helens blew, um, instead of what you picture with a volcano, which is the top blows off and everything goes up, Mount St. Helens, the side caved, kind of caved and slid down and it blew out to the side rather than up. And this is what happened here. A part of the tip slide just goes. And there's a tipping gang that's actually working on the mountain. They see it begin, but they were unable to call a warning down to the village because someone had stolen their telephone cable. Uh, however, the slide happened so fast. I mean, even if they had a phone call, a phone to call, it would have been useless. The kids who were in the school describe it as a loud rumbling sound, which grew and grew. You have to imagine what these kids uh, were experiencing in this school. You're sitting in your classroom. You're a little kid. You're sitting in your classroom, and you hear a rumbling sound, and you look out the windows to your left, to your right, however you're situated. And you look out, and all you see is the slope and fog. You see the ground, you see the grass, and it's going up the hill, and then there's this fog, and you hear this rumbling, and it's coming, it's coming, and through the fog you start to see rocks coming down the hill, maybe individual rocks skipping down the hill, maybe bigger rocks coming, and then you start to see a black mass moving through the fog, coming towards you, and you can't move fast enough to escape whatever that is. You can't run, you can't hide. There's really nothing you can do at this point. The most some of these kids seem to be able to do, some of these survivors seem to have been able to do, is stand up. That's it. And, I mean, you were seeing everything, uh, like, you know, kind of the hints that you would see in a horror movie. The lights were flashing on and off. A woman somewhere else in the valley said that she was seeing the lines and the poles outside her windows jump and shake just from the vibration. She wasn't seeing the slurry collapse because of the fog, but you were seeing all of the hints that something was going wrong, but not actually seeing what was going wrong until it was too late. This 40-foot dark wall of sludge uh, slams into the Pant Glass School, the rear of the Pant Glass School, and it basically swallows up the Pant Glass School, the Junior School, 
40 nearby houses, 18 of which are just completely obliterated. Um, a farm. I saw it, you references to two farms, basically, at least one farm, and part of another school, part of the um, senior school as well is, is, is struck, although not as seriously as the junior school. One survivor described how he was meeting his mates in front of the senior school. Uh, he was supposed to meet them there. And when he got to Moy Road, he spotted them sitting on a wall in front of the row of homes between the schools. He was watching as this black wave of slurry came down the hill, hit the school, and then swallowed up his friends. He didn't see them alive again. The front of the school itself is not too damaged. Uh, if you see pictures of that day, you see the front of the school and it, I mean, it's damaged, but it's not as bad off that you can't tell that it was a school, that it was a building and that it's was, um, it was somewhere that looked steady. I mean, it's made out of stone. It, it looks like it should have been able to hold up to something like this, but the Northern side at the rear of the school was completely destroyed. Three classrooms were completely wrecked by this disaster. Uh, the wave of slurry also swallowed up a farm, as I said, on the side of the hill. Uh, it took a grandmother and her two grandchildren who were left home uh, that day when the rest of the family was away shopping. And so when people start to come to the school and start to help rescue, they see scraps of wallpaper and chickens running around. Uh, if they've survived at all. And that's where this came from. It came from this farm that had been swallowed up by the landslide. Witnesses who describe that day describe this just this overwhelming silence in the immediate aftermath. The entire valley just goes absolutely silent. Just like that can't hear anything you you hear nothing everybody's in a little bit of shock uh, and then once the slide came to a stop the slurry re-solidifies it gets hard all of a sudden so now first it's a slide and then it's just rock all around you if you imagine um one of the uh one of the newsreels that i saw described it as having the consistency of molten chocolate and so of course with molten chocolate it's liquid up to a time but then it's it hardens and when it hardens it's it's a little different uh you know than than when it's it's liquid so you have this enormous mound of slurry hardening and blocking the northern end of my road it, about 40 feet deep. Uh, the rescue would um, be very involved, but 116 children and 28 adults would die in Abervan that day. Uh, Abervan was described as ha having to bury a generation of its children, which it's, it's pretty apt when you see the numbers. Uh, the children were all between the ages of 7 and 10 and made up almost half of the 240 students at Penn Class Junior School. Five of the school's teachers, there were nine of them, uh, died in the disaster, including the headmistress, uh, Ann Jennings, who was only a year from retirement. Uh, Howell Williams said that the last thing Miss Jennings said to him that day as they passed in the hall was, the checks have arrived, Mr. Williams, you know, the paychecks were there. Uh, Margretta Bates was in the middle of preparing her class for exams when the wave struck and she passed away. 
uh, David Bainan tried to protect his class of nine-year-olds. Uh, when he was actually found, he was cradling some of his pupils in his arms, but they were all dead. Marjorie Rees was found clutching a one-pound note Howell Williams had given her for a teacher's night out. And there was also a new teacher named Michael Davies who was killed in the disaster. Now there was a dinner lady, Nancy Williams, who was collecting dinner money and uh, when it happened. And she was with some girls, about four or five girls, I believe it was. And uh, when the uh, she was taking their dinner money and when the wave of slurry came, she kind of threw herself over them and died to protect them. Only four teachers in the school would survive. Um, and when you look at some of these injuries, I mean, the two of the doctor, two doctors who had issued death certificates to those killed, would attribute the causes to asphyxia, fractured skulls, and multiple crush injuries. So that's what these people are encountering as they start arriving at the school. You have all these um, children in here who uh, have suffered these horrible injuries. Especially even the ones who have survived are just um, uh, dealing with some some very difficult injuries. The Murder Tidful police uh, quickly took charge of the rescue efforts, and somebody needed to take charge of these efforts. Uh, witness Eno Sims, who I believe he was a minor, most of the men there were, uh, described these frantic mothers who had arrived, you know, who had basically swarmed the school after seeing what happened and were digging through the rubble with their bare hands. I mean, you have to imagine all these women who just in these dresses and just running up and just digging through, uh, looking for their children. The number of untrained volunteers made organizing the rescue efforts harder. You had so many parents who had run there to help their kids, and they really had no idea what they were doing. Uh, rescue efforts were also made difficult by the fact that water and sludge were still flowing down the hillside. Stuff was still coming. Uh, the slurry also divided the rescue efforts in two. When you look at a picture of the aftermath of the slide, what it is is you see um, you see the tips at the top of the picture. They're um, if you get one of the color pictures, it's they're black. You can tell they're coal slurry. And then at the bottom of the hill, you have Abervan. You have all those nice, neat little um, rows of houses and and brick buildings, and and then you see what looks like. Um, hardened tar, a trail of it coming down the hill, and it extends into the town where it clearly has, you know, destroyed some buildings. And you can see how if you're on one side of that pile of slurry, you're not getting over to the other side. You're going to have to drive around it or walk around it to get to the other side. So you have these two groups trying to rescue people who really can't communicate the way that they would like because you have them in two entirely different places. And so what they needed was people who ha at least had some training in rescue. And that's where the miners come in. The miners came from the Murther Vale, Taff Vale, and other collieries to assist in the rescue. And the thing about the miners is they were ready and trained to deal with disasters underground. So they were willing to, to jump in and help. And these were people who were really, you know, they had the organization and the information to uh, be able to get in there, listen to uh, somebody in command who can say, okay, well, we need to move it this way as opposed to that way. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're showing up with their own shovels. These are, these are miners who are ready to come in and for good reason, because 
you know, they had been trained to, uh, as one uh, reporter said, you know, they'd, they'd been trained to help other miners. They'd been trained to expect disasters that strike miners. This wasn't striking miners. This was miners' children. These were their children. A lot of these miners who showed up were miners who were looking for their own kids. Uh, you had a lot of this with, um, you know, the press showing up and, and saying to, to people, you know, well, you know, what are you doing here? And, and, and these miners would just almost matter-of-factly say, I have three kids in there. Um, and this is the sort of thing that was going on. You had these um, miners and neighbors removing mubble, rubble with their hands to prevent further collapse, as, as as often happens in these situations. You know, you see this in in other collapses that I've talked about on on the show, where you um, you know, if you take the wrong piece out at the wrong time, the entire thing collapses. It's like Jenga. So you know, you have to be very careful about what you're taking out and what time you're taking it out. Um, as the slurry slid down the hillside, it also ruptured the murder to Cardiff water main, which is why there was water coming down the hill. Um, you know, not only do they have this black sludge that they need to dig out from, but they have this torrent of water that is flowing down the mountain, which is hindering rescue attempts and threatening trapped survivors with the possibility of drowning. Uh, there was a miner who um, was on his time off and he was sleeping in his bedroom when the, uh, when the wave happened. He was in that row of houses that was destroyed and he was under that threat of drowning because of the water getting as high as it was. They started to string up um, arc lights so rescue and recovery efforts could continue overnight uh, but only a few children were pulled out alive uh, and no survivors were removed after 11 a.m. Uh, you know, the, 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 so the children that were able to walk out were able to walk out, but there were some that were, you know, trapped and only a few of them were alive. Um, Gaynor Magwick, the one who wrote Abervan, uh, she was, um, struck by a radiator and was trapped underneath that. And she tells how there was a uh, kind of crack in the wall and, a, and an arm was draped over her and she kind of pinched it and it didn't move. And that was kind of the indication that she got that, that, you know, this was a situation where somebody, you know, where there were dead people. Um, and it turned out that she, she ended up having a, a very seriously broken leg and her own uh, father and her grandfather and her mother had arrived at the scene and were kind of passing her along to get her out of, of there. Um, but this is the sort of thing that was happening was you uh, had um, only a few children who were still alive. If they were, they were sometimes seriously injured. Uh, 60 bodies were removed by the end of the first day. Some of these children were found still sitting in their seats. Like I said, this happened really quickly. These children did not have any uh, chance to react in most cases. It would take nearly a week to recover all the bodies due to the amount and consistency of the sludge. And there was also the fact that in a lot of cases, um, in, in the classrooms, the class register had been swallowed up by the slurry, just like the kids had. So people had to go door to door to verify which kids had even gone to school that day. I mean, it's it's the last day before holiday. There's a lot of times where, you know, people will say, you know, oh, you can stay home today. Oh, you know, it's it's only a half day. You can stay. And so, you know, they really didn't know that all of these kids were even in the school at the time. They really had to verify that simply by going door to door. 
The bodies of the children would be taken to Bethania Chapel, which was only about 250 yards from the disaster site. It became a temporary morgue and a, and a place to register missing persons. There was also the Abervan Calvinistic Chapel. It was also used as a sort of a smaller secondary mortuary, but these really weren't big chapels. Um, there were um, over 400 embalmers who arrived within two days and were able to clean and prepare most of the bodies quickly enough for release of those bodies to begin on Monday, October 24th. The thing about disasters like this is that, um, you know, it's sort of morbid to think about, but there aren't a big supply of child-sized coffins. Uh, and so in a situation like this, they started getting these coffins from across the nation. Um, these, you know, they had, they, they more than likely did not have enough for the adults either. You know, if 28 adults at the same time, that's, that's a lot of adults, but this is 140, you know, 116 kids. They did definitely did not have enough, um, in enough coffins for that. So they were bringing in coffins from all across the UK just to make sure that they had enough for every single one of these children. When the parents were finally allowed to enter the chapel to identify their children, they were only able to do so one at a time due to the cramped interior. Uh, they were trying to make sure uh, that they didn't have to look at as many children as they uh, could. They really were trying to, to lessen how many dead children they had to look at. Uh, they would ask them, you know, what was your child wearing? Um, what was, you know, what did they look like? What color hair did they have? That sort of thing. And then they would bring them in and sort of show them specific children. Uh, but it, I, at least in one case, one parent said, you know, I had to look through every single little girl in there before I finally got to mine. So, uh, you know, you can only imagine how traumatizing that is. And, and the disaster fund that was later set up, it, actually ended up having to pay to replace the Bethaniel Chapel because worshipers were coming in later on and they were upset. You, know, you walk in and you see these pews and all you can picture is that every single pew has a dead child on it or two dead children or three dead children. And this is what you have to think about when you're in church. They were really trying to kind of lessen this emotional and, and mental impact of, of having to deal with that. Abervan basically became Britain's first televised disaster. It was something where, uh, you know, all of this press sort of swarms the area. Uh, there was a really famous photograph of the disaster taken by an apprentice newspaper photographer named Mel Perry uh, of a um, of one of the rescuers carrying a little girl named Susan Maybanks out of the rubble. She was alive, so it was one of those situations where it was more of a positive photograph than it could be in a lot of these uh, situations in terms of photographs of disasters. The most famous picture is not of um, somebody who survived. There was a rumor that also circulated about a photographer who uh, was telling a child to cry for her dead friends because it would make a good picture. So you really have two different sides of the coin. It was you know, you, you'd get, you know, sort of the photographer getting the hopeful thing and then this sort of darker side of, of, of the media, maybe not uh, playing the right way. Uh, there were a lot of notable people in uh, Britain who wanted to come and pay their respects. Uh, you had Queen Elizabeth 
the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, Prime Minister Harold Wilson, Lord Snowden, uh, they all visited the disaster site at some moment or another to see the tragic destruction that was left behind by the collapse of the tip. Uh, witnesses said that Prime Minister Wilson saw the tips that were still on the hill during his visit and stated, those must go. Princess Margaret, uh, Queen Elizabeth's sister, for those of you who don't know, uh, Princess Margaret called out an appeal for toys for the surviving children of Avervan. Uh, and the post office in Cardiff actually had to set, put aside four unused buildings to house all the toys that were donated. The queen, uh, when she did arrive, was given a flower from a little girl with the inscription from the remaining children of Avervan. And witnesses said she cried, and understandably so. That doesn't... They, I want to cry reading that. Um, Lord Snowden, uh, who was married to Princess Margaret at the time, and Prince Philip were visiting at the same time. And, and this is the problem with um, the Queen visiting as well. The Queen didn't visit immediately. She put it off for a few days until, um, you know, sort of rescue efforts had 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 narrowed had um, kind of narrowed down. Uh, and and there's a there's a reason for that. Uh, protocol said that you know Lord Snowden, Prince Philip. Uh, the, who's the Duke of Edinburgh, for again, those of you who don't know, um, were, uh, you know, they couldn't meet or be together. Uh, the thing about disasters, and you'll see this in the news a lot, particularly you saw this in the election when Louisiana was flooding. Uh, you would have people saying, you know, well, why didn't this particular candidate or this particular politician go to the area to help out or to show their support or do whatever? But the thing about that is, and the queen herself was concerned about this at Abervan, is that when you go and you're a politician and you're a, or you're a candidate or something like that, when you go during one of these disasters, it's a distraction from what these authorities have to do to save people you have to stop everything and you know bring uh, out cops for security so you know a cop that has been um, you know rescuing people or protecting children or doing whatever they have to do to help with the rescue now has to drop everything and come and protect you and that's why a lot of times me, me myself when I see these kind of things on the news I get a little frustrated because what you're doing is distracting from the rescue and the recovery you can do that without going and 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 distracting from that and that was one of the um, the commendable things about the Queen uh, at this particular time was that she really kind of put it off for a little bit um, it, you know knowing full well what her arrival was going to do in terms of um, pulling attention and assistance away from the rescues and the recovery and, and the um, cleanup. Lord Robins himself also flew to Abervan the day after the disaster to assess the damage, but this is the start of, of Lord Robins sort of um, kind of tripping over his own feet repeatedly. Um, he took a lot of flack for the fact that he did not immediately go to the site, but he instead went through with an investiture, investiture as chancellor of the University of Surrey. Uh, he did not even reach the site until Saturday evening, almost 36 hours later. This is not like the Queen going. Lord Robins is not going to distract as much as he's going to be somebody who's in charge. He's somebody who should be going, and he didn't. 
uh, until it, a little late for when he should have been getting there. Um, officers of the National Coal Board supposedly told the Secretary of State for Wales at the time, Cledwin Hughes, that Lord Robins was personally directing relief work when he wasn't even there. So, like I said, this is when things start to kind of trip over themselves. Uh, it was clear that between the heavy rains and a natural spring underneath the tip, the slurry, which was usually powdery, had turned, like I said, to the consistency of molten chocolate. The image that I saw in one of the newsreels looked a lot more like if you've ever made a uh, chocolate cake mix from a like, chocolate cake from a mix and you have this the dry ingredients and you you add say an egg um and you mix it up and or you add the oil and it's still kind of gritty but it's still more of a a sludge that's the consistency that you're looking at here lord robins was quickly a target for questions regarding if anybody could have known this was going to happen and he ended up claiming to reporters that no one could have known about the spring at the center of the tip. However, in Abervan, everybody knew about the existence of the spring. That's the thing about a small town. You, you know, you live your, there your whole life, so you know these sorts of things. Uh, it was marked on maps. It was featured on an ordnance survey in 1919 and a geological survey in 1959. And of course, the village children had played up there. They knew all of this stuff. When you're a little kid and you're crawling all over these sorts of things, you know every inch of it. And you remember that sort of stuff even when you're an adult. So the Minister of Power was Richard March at the time, Marsh at the time, and he was given authority by the PM to do whatever he needed to investigate the disaster. So they, the first thing they do is they call this inquest into the deaths of 30 of the children. Um, not all of the children, just 30 of the children. At the inquest, um, children, you know, these parents were just absolutely devastated and they're going through everything and, uh, you know, they're reading aloud the, the names of their children and their causes of death and, and upset parents were shouting murderers. Uh, and you had, of course, like I quoted at the beginning of the episode, you had, um, parents saying, you know, no, I don't want their, their, uh, cause of death listed as, as, you know, crushing or suffocation or, or whatever. I want it listed as buried, buried by the national coal board. Um, you know, this is the kind of, uh, anger that was festering in this town at the time. On, at, at the end of the inquest, it would find the national coal board negligent and call out Lord Robins himself for making misleading statements. On October 26th, the Secretary of State for Wales appointed a tribunal headed by Lord Justice Edmund Davies to look into the Aberfan disaster. The tribunal lasted 76 days, mostly because, according to the report, the National Coal Board kept deflecting any blame on them. Uh, the inquiry uh, interviewed 136 witnesses and examined 300 exhibits. Uh, Lord Robbins himself testified in the final days of the tribunal that the coal board was at fault and the disaster was foreseeable, but it took 76 days to get to that point. This is where the report saying that the National Coal Board kept deflecting any blame comes from because, you know, Lord Robbins could have easily stood there at the beginning of the, the uh, tribunal and said as much. And they wouldn't have, you know, spent all that time looking into it. But instead, you know, two and a half months after this tribunal starts, that's when he gets up there and says that. The tribunal retired to consider its verdict on April 28th, 
1967 and published its report on August 3rd. Uh, well, first of all, the National Coal Board, unsurprisingly, was found to be of blame. This was due to a total absence of policy regarding the tips, but the National Coal Board didn't really have any guidelines to go on from the law or the Inspectorate of Mines. There was no law dealing with the tip safety in the UK. In fact, only parts of West Germany and South Africa had laws regarding tip safety at the time. The National Coal Board was legally re required to pay compensation for injuries, deaths, and property damages. The, uh, the National Coal Board would end up paying out £160,000 to compensate the victims, including £500 for each fatality. Uh, I saw £5,000 in one source. Basically, I mean, they were um, uh, paying a certain amount. They, they did uh, pay for that. But no one at the National Coal Board ended up being fired, demoted, or arrested. Or, or and arrested or prosecuted for anything, in, including Lord Robins. Lord Robins actually did offer his resignation to Minister of Power Marsh, but he and the Prime Minister refused to accept Lord Robins's re re resignation. Here's another thing that's a little skeevy. Uh, they, the Minister of Power and the Prime Minister had, had kind of cited the fact that Lord Robins had carried the coal industry through a tense time without having big strikes, and that there was strong support for him in the industry in the Union. But what was happening behind the scenes is that Lord Robins had gone to Marsh and uh, Minister of Power Marsh and then said, I'm going to tender my resignation. I'm going to send you a resignation letter. And Marsh said, I'm not going to accept it. So what he did was he wrote out a letter denying the resignation, saying, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, not going to accept this and you uh, i'm not going to accept your resignation but blah, blah. you know kind of that formal resignation letter he he wrote that out and robins approved it and then robins went home and wrote his resignation letter and sent it in so you have this uh you have all of this kind of public relations um you know kind of juggling going on and it really didn't make things look good. And they really didn't lie about it. They didn't try to cover it up. It was something that, you know, later on, Marsh was like, yes, this is exactly what we did. You know, Robins said the same thing. Yeah, that's, that's what we did. Um, so, you know, you already have these, these families and these parents that are really angry and, and kind of about sort of double dealing with the National Coal Board and everything that was going on. And, and then you find out about something like this really didn't go over that well. The National Coal Board itself as an organization was not prosecuted. Organizations at the time couldn't be prosecuted for corporate manslaughter. They actually couldn't happen in, in the United Kingdom until about 2007. So really nobody got punished. Uh, the National Union of Mine Workers and the Merthyr Tidful Borough Council were also found not to be of blame. So, you know, basically those who were a lot of those who were of blame were not punished and those who weren't of blame, you know, they weren't punished either. Nobody really was punished. And that was sort of the thing that, you know, there was one more thing that made the families of Abervan more angry. Uh, Parliament did make new laws in the wake of the disaster regarding mine and quarry safety, the most important of which was the Mine and Quarries Act of 1969. It was also called the TIPS Act. It was designed to, quote unquote, make further provision in relation to tips associated with mines and quarries to prevent disused tips constituting a danger to members of the public and for purposes connected with those matters. 
It was an extension of the 1954 Mines and Quarries Act, as the original act did not deal with tips and did not require the disaster to be formally reported to the Inspectorate of Mines and Quarries because it did not take place on colliery property, and no mine workers were harmed at the, in the disaster. The um, people of Abervan were more concerned about the tips themselves. You, know, you still have tips on top of this hill. And removing them became a real struggle. Uh, the tip removal would cost about three million pounds. The National Coal Board and the Inquiry Report suggested that they were safe and that they should just landscape them. You know, put some, throw some trees, put some grass on there, you know, just leave them there. Uh, but the, the people of Aberfan wouldn't be swayed. And it wasn't just the people of Aberfan, it was other people as well. You have all these people sitting around, um, you know, being genuinely angry that, you know, the uh, National Coal Board, the Inquiry Report, all of these people seem to be kind of hand-waving the concerns of people in Aberfan, not only of the safety, but you have to imagine the emotional and mental effect of staring up the hill at these tips, knowing full well that one of them killed 144 people in your hometown. You know, even if it was safe, nobody wants to look at these things anymore. So you had protesters who wanted these tips removed. They were doing things like leaving a handful of coal slurry on the desk of the, in the Welsh office of the Secretary of State of Wales, who at that time was George Thomas. Uh, the public pressure uh, from all around led the government to remove the tips. Uh, like I said, less because of safety and more at that point because of the psychological effect on the community who had already been through so much. Just get the tips away at that point. But you have the Everfan Disaster Memorial Fund. It's founded in the wake of the disaster. It receives over 90,000 contributions for a total of 1.6 million pounds, which is about 27 million pounds in today's money, uh, before it closed in January of 1967. Uh, you know, they were getting donations from all over the world. There were magazines like Time and Life that were, you know, were, uh, uh, that were, uh, writing articles and those sorts of things about, uh, what happened. And so it was getting a lot of attention and they were getting all these notes. They got a note from, uh, one, uh, person in, uh, along with their donation, which said, please use a small amount in any way you wish. I was saving up for a new coat. Oh God, I wish I had saved more. You're sincerely a mother. The problem came when, uh, you know, things started to get a little nitpicky. That's saying it mildly. Uh, the Charity Commission did at one point pause in making payments. Uh, they held off on paying individual victims and making payments for the cemetery memorial for the disaster. Uh, they considered the possibility of analyzing whether or not parents who'd lost children in the disaster were really close to their children and were suffering mentally before receiving payments. Seems like they considered the possibility. I don't think from what I read that they actually did that because that is vile. Uh, they also got into a disagreement with trustees over whether or not to issue payments to children with no physical injuries from that day. So it really became, you know, sort of nitpicking about whether or not, you know, somebody who was genuinely traumatized by what happened, you know, deserved to get any sort of compensation for that. And then came the fight about the tips. Uh, the fight by Everfan residents to make the remaining tips safe or remove them at all uh, was paid for by a 200,000 pound grant from the government. But what they ended up doing was they ended up taking 150,000 pounds from the memorial fund 
to contribute as well in August of 1968. This pissed a lot of people off to say it mildly you actually had had people like like the manchester united football club donated forty two thousand pounds to the fund and they were so angry about the fact that this amount was taken from the fund this hundred and fifty thousand pounds that they were going to demand their donation back because they did not donate it so it would go to the government and that was a lot of people's attitude you know we didn't donate to this so that the government could take it we donated to this to help the children and to help the families and so a lot of people were really mad about this in 1997 the glare government paid back the 150,000 pounds to the fund but it was 150,000 pounds it wasn't adjusted for inflation and it didn't have the interest it would have earned over the past few decades added on uh, in 2007, the Welsh Assembly uh, ended up donating 1.5 million pounds to make up for the money taken in the first place. But it's still a really sketchy thing that happened. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people in Aberman were just absolutely livid about. Not because they were being greedy or anything, just because it just seemed like such a manipulative thing to do uh, to people who had suffered so much. And in Brintaf Cemetery, uh, the graves of the children who died in the disaster are lined up in two rows set in the hillside marked by white arches. If you look at uh, pictures of the memorial, it's, it's one of the more beautiful memorials that I've ever seen in regards to a disaster. Uh, you have these, these um, two rows. They are have parallel to the valley, basically. Uh, the first row, and they're on a hillside, so one is slightly higher than the other right behind it. And what you have is you have a paved pathway going parallel to the valley, a uh, little, little bit of a, a stone wall, maybe about knee high, and then the uh, grassy area where the uh, children are buried. And then behind that is a row of arches. Uh, it basically looks like a row of doorways. Again, this is all parallel to one another going up the hill. Um, you have this, this row of archways, and they're really beautiful. They're white archways. Um, it looks like a, like a, just a row of doorways, and behind that is a little higher up is, is the same thing again, basically. 81 of the victims were buried on October 27th, all of whom were, were children, save for a mother who was buried between her two sons. Um, like I said, the, the, this disaster affected Abervan really hard. You had uh, just so many children had died that a lot of children learned to play away from the parents who had lost children because they really didn't want to upset them. You know, you'd be playing outside and you'd have, you know, parents staring at you. And, you know, you, you knew full well that the reason that they were staring at you is because you were one of three or four eight-year-olds left from your grade. That's it. There's three or four of you. That's all there is. Um, and so you know, you learn to play away from people, you learn to kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, help out other people who were traumatized as well by, you know, sort of accommodating their, you know, their, their grief. A British Journal of Psychi Psychiatry study in 2003 found that half of the survivors from Abervan had suffered from PTSD at some point in their lives, and that a third of the survivors still suffered nightmares or difficulty sleeping. 
when you read Abervan, uh, Abervan itself is not a very, uh, the book by Gaynor Madrick, it's not a really detailed book about, um, you know, if you're looking for a really detailed minute by minute account of what happened that day, it's, it, I wouldn't recommend it for that. But if you're looking for something to kind of give you an impression of how these people managed to survive something so horrible and live day to day over the decades that followed, it's a really good book. It's it, She interviews a lot of people who survived, who lost kids. She talks to them about, you know, what they did to get by, how they were able to uh, go on from one day to the next. And it's a really good analysis of the mental and emotional impact of a disaster on a community. It, it's a very, very good one. And I mean, I highly recommend reading it just for that. And that's the thing, like when I get these disaster books, a lot of the times I just want to read about the disaster. But this is a really interesting book in terms of looking at the, the kind of the, the psychological aspects of what a disaster does to a community. One of the things that a lot of the mums in Abervan did to cope was they formed a group called the Young Abervan Wives. Uh, it was a way to bond. You know, they would get together, they would talk, uh, they would, you know, have parties and they would, they would have, you know, picnics. They would do all sorts of different things. You know, you have a bake sale, that kind of thing. Uh, but it was a way to be in a room full of people who understood what you had been through. A lot of these wives, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of these wives had lost children in the disaster. And so you're in a room with a bunch of people who are just as traumatized as you are for exactly the same reason. It's like going to a group for people who are um, who need grief counseling because they lost a child, except this is a group for grief counseling for people who lost children in the same disaster. They all know exactly what you went through because they all went through exactly the same thing. You can't really you know, kind of psychologically puts away from the fact that, well, you don't know, you don't understand how I'm feeling. Of course they understand how you're feeling. They experienced the exact same thing. And so these young Abervan wives group, uh, this, this group, uh, I mean, you have to kind of imagine it's this little, you know, town in the UK with this group of wives and they were really, um, kind of lifting each other up. You know, they understood, they could listen to you talk, they could listen to you cry, they could listen to you laugh, and they understood where you were coming from. And the group still exists today. Uh, they've dropped young from the title, which is kind of funny when you see them talk about it. They're, they're very, you know, they, there's a bond there and it's, uh, uh, a really um, empowering way to see, you know, these people who, who really, really suffered um, find a way to grieve and and move forward. You know, I mean, there's, a lot of these people are still grieving, you know, 50 years down the line, obviously so, because they, they all lost, you know, something very important to them, uh, their children. And so, you know, you have, you have um, mothers who are still, you know, touching pictures of their kids before they leave the house uh, every day. You know, every time they pass a picture of, uh, there was one woman who every time she passes a picture of her daughter, she, she touches it or gives it a kiss. And, and, you know, it's very touching, but this, this is you know, 50 years down the line. It's, this is how long this impact is and psychologically, mentally, emotionally, it's, it's hard. 
The Abervan and Merthervale Community Center was built near the site of the disaster with funds from the Disaster Fund, the Memorial Fund, along with a rose garden. The rose garden itself is, is at the site of the disaster. If you go to this rose garden, it's it's beautiful garden. Um, it's laid out to follow the floor plan of the original school. There's these little walls and pathways, and they're all set up so you know where the classrooms are. Um, the uh, Spellbrook Primary School, which was nearby, uh, the children and staff collected money at the time to pay for trees to be planted on a nearby tip as a memorial. And there's a picture of it, if you look on Wikipedia, there's a picture of it. And it's, you know, all of these other trees around it are kind of like, um, uh, I can't remember the name for the kind of trees. Basically the ones that, you know, where the leaves turn brown and fall off in the winter. Um, they, it's pine trees that they planted. And so, you know, you have all these brown trees and then this patch of, of pines that stick out uh, color-wise. And they just, it's just um, really neat to see how they, they planted trees that, you know, even when, you know, fall rolls around and all the leaves fall off the other trees, these ones endure. The uh, Merthyr Vale Colliery itself ended up cl closing in 1989, so the mine is not still going. Uh, in 1968, the Inesowen School opened in the village next to the colliery. Uh, in the aftermath of the disaster, they really needed to find a way to still teach these kids. So what they did was they set up three mobile classrooms in the park for the surviving junior school kids. Uh, there was kind of some pushback about the situation. You know, the parents were really concerned because where they were, they could still see the tips. Um, you know, they, it, that was a lot of the thing. Everybody was really concerned about um, these kids, these uh, poor kids. Um, the teachers, the four teachers who survived stayed on to teach in these classrooms. And that really helped from the way that the kids talk about the disaster it really helped to have those teachers there because the teachers knew what you went through. They were in the school that day, just like you were. They didn't bring in new teachers. You know, if you were upset, they could, they knew what you were upset about. They understood it. Uh, so it was Hal Williams and Hetty Taylor, who were two of the surviving teachers. They continued to teach at the prefab classrooms. Um, the thing about the prefab classrooms is, is, you know, it's a little different from your normal classroom situation, especially considering it's a bunch of traumatized children. Uh, Gaynor Magwick, uh, she had suffered this really severe leg injury, like I said, and she was in the hospital for a couple of months. And even when she got the cast off her leg, you know, she's still limping around. She still really didn't have a lot of feeling in that leg. And so, you know, there's a lot of pity given to these survivors anyway, but she kind of was talking about uh, in her book how uh, she and another girl who was just as badly injured would get away with a lot. They would be, instead of being in class, they would be like in the kitchens washing dishes just just because and that's sort of the thing that um you know finding good memories in the aftermath of such a terrible disaster is kind of what keeps you going um this particular disaster I, I, a lot of people um i can't remember the names of who did but who suggested it but um it's just, I, I had kind of heard about it in passing and I really, I didn't even think about it until somebody mentioned it and I was like, oh yeah, that disaster, okay. And I didn't have realized it had been 50 years. I think that's the thing. When you see like old footage, old news footage or something like this, and you see it in black and white, you somehow think it's further back than it really was. Um, but um, 
you can tell just how badly something like this affects the community, especially with the interviews that they did. And a lot of these people found a way to um, pick themselves up and uh, feel better about everything that was going on. I mean, you know, obviously these are people who are, you know, are in some ways still traumatized. Um, but, uh, like I said, I can't help but not, you know, I can't help but in this situation related to my own hometown. You know, I live in a small town, it's on a hill, it's in a mining community. If there were tips around here, if there were slag heaps up on the hill, you know, you kind of think, what if, you know, it came down the hill into, you know, destroying things. Um, I've, I've had nightmares like that. I think that's kind of the thing. In this particular area where I live, disasters don't really happen. I don't, well, I don't want to say that. You know, we don't have tornadoes. We don't have earthquakes. We don't have anything like that. We have floods and we have blizzards. And those only rarely, especially blizzards anymore, uh, you know, there's snow out on the ground now, but there really isn't a lot of, um, there really isn't the kind of blizzards that happened like when I was a kid. You know, I always think of the blizzard of 93 where I was stuck in the house for a week watching TV. And by the time, you know, Friday rolled around uh, and five days had gone by, and I wasn't able to get out and do anything. I kind of wanted to go back to school at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, in this particular day and age, it's really, you know, not the same thing. So, and because it is, you know, the other thing is a flood. I mean, we're on a hillside up high enough on the hill where it really wouldn't affect us. So this particular town where I'm in is relatively safe from the sort of things that, um, you know, and especially with the tips that I mentioned, I mean, like my immediate thought was, is there a tip on top of this mountain? And I had to think about it, which is terrifying, but there isn't one, I don't think. And, and, and the thing is that like, if I had known that as a kid, if I had heard this story as a kid and I had thought about it, I probably would have imagined a tip on the hill just, just because I was that paranoid. I always, um, as a kid, I lived with my parents on top of the hill, and I still managed to think, you know, if this place floods, my room is going to flood first. Uh, you know, I was a paranoid little kid. This is what happens when you read a lot about disasters as a little kid. Um, you get a little paranoid, and I've gotten to the point where I kind of reason, okay, the odds aren't in my favor in terms of a disaster happening here, which is a good thing, but... You know, it, I really wish I could go back in time and tell my, my younger self that something like this does not happen. Um, it wouldn't happen in this area, or at least it shouldn't happen in this area. Knock on wood. Um, but that's the thing. I, I'm sure, you know, that the kids in this classroom were telling themselves the same thing. You know, even though they could see the tips up on the hill. You know, the kids don't know any better. The kids don't know the same things that the adults do. They don't know that a letter is going around saying danger of coal slurry sliding into Pent Glass School. They don't know that. Um, they just, you know, go on with their lives. And then one day, the slurry falls. One of the things that I wanted to do, too, uh, at the end of this episode was recommend some of the sources for this episode. There were some really good sources. Um, uh, the one thing that I really, really wanted to recommend is uh, for the anniversary, the BBC made this, um, I don't want to call it a documentary. It's more like a film. It's called The Hollow Green, I believe it is, uh, which is what Pantgloss is in Welsh. 
it's I, I actually am linking it in the episode notes it's uh or the green hollow i believe it's the green Hollow. i can't remember which one it is at the moment but um it's beautiful it is absolutely beautiful it's written by a poet who i believe his name is owen Shear, and you can tell it was written by a poet uh, when I looked up, you know, information about it in Wikipedia, it said it was written by a poet. I said, oh, that explains everything. Um, it has in it uh, some recognizable Welsh faces. If you know anything about Welsh actors, it has Eva Miles from Torchwood. It has Michael Sheen. And it's, you'll find it on, on, on YouTube. Um, I'm linking to it in this, the episode notes. But um, it's it, it's got some beautiful imagery in it it's uh they're acting out kind of witness statements and survivor statements and it there's just it's just really really gorgeous it's one of the, my favorite things that i've ever had to use as research for this um uh podcast and really i mean in terms of research it's not really research it's just something really gorgeous that they made and um uh, that is probably um, something that I would recommend to anybody, regardless of whether or not they listen to the podcast. It's it's great, um, it's beautiful, it's 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 um, visually stunning, it's it's um, content wise, it's it's amazing, um, and uh, that is one of the good things. Abervan by Gaynor Radwick um, is just an extraordinary picture of what psychological trauma can do to a, a, a community that has uh, suffered from a disaster. Um, you know, just kind of looking at what happened to these people, you know, 50 years on, how they've, how they've handled losing children, how they've handled, um, in some cases, uh, you know, uh, being injured themselves. Uh, surviving themselves, how they rescued people, you know, whatever. And she, and it's really clear that, you know, um, you can survive um, anything uh, if, if you have the strength. It's not bad not to have the strength. It's, it's understandable if you don't. Um, and I say this as somebody who has mental health issues you know, I don't know if I would be able to handle this. And you, you see people in this book and in, in other uh, documentaries that I'm, that I'm also linking into in the episode notes. And I kind of wonder myself, you know, would I be able to handle this? And I'm not sure I would. Um, and so, you know, there's some really interesting looks into uh, how, how people have managed to maintain themselves all these years later in that book. Um, now, as for next episode, um, I'm not sure what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of know what I'm doing, but um, um, obviously I'm, I'm not saying anything because I like to keep it a surprise. But um, uh, I, I, I have a vague idea what I'm doing and I'm not telling. So um, if um, uh, you can uh, wait for the next episode <laughs> and wait to find out what I'm going to do, um, you will... Uh, find out in about a week or two i'm hoping we'll see how fast i can whip together in the next episode uh but until next time stay safe